From KIOS in Omaha, you're listening to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and today I'm talking with Dan Mervish, writer, director, and producer of the new film, 18 and a Half. The nice thing about doing a period film, you know, uh, is that it allows you to comment on and be relevant and resonate with anything in the future. You know, you can read Trump into a Nixon allegory, but, you know, we showed the film in in Brazil at the Sao Paulo International Film Festival, and they were all like, oh, this is really about Bolsonaro. (laughs) Or we showed it in England at the Manchester Film Festival, where I won the Best Director Prize, and they were like, oh, this is just like Boris Johnson and his goofy scandal. Mervish talks about politics and films, how he was influenced by Robert Altman, and what we can learn from media about Nixon today. Stay tuned for the conversation after this break. We have an exciting announcement here at Riverside Chats, which is that we will be doing a live recording of an upcoming episode of this show at Benston Theater on September 24th, where you can see me on stage, in conversation, with the man himself from Mannheim Steamroller, Chip Davis. We'll be talking about his subversive approach to the music industry, the creation of Mannheim Steamroller, and how he's helped build spaces like Benson Theater for Omaha culture to flourish. Following the conversation, there will be an opportunity for audience participation and questions. I don't know, maybe we will, like Mr. Chip Davis himself, Sing some Christmas songs, but make them really loud and intense. I don't know what's going to happen. It has to happen live, and hopefully you'll be there with us. Check for tickets at BensonTheater.org. An evening with Chip Davis, our first live recorded Riverside Chats since the show premiered on public radio. See you September 24th. Welcome to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. Today I'm talking with Dan Mervish, award-winning filmmaker and co-founder of the Slam Dance Film Festival. His films include Omaha the Movie, Open House, Between Us, and Bernard and Huey. His new film is 18 and a Half, a Watergate comedy thriller starring Willa Fitzgerald and John Magaro. They play a transcriptionist and a reporter, respectively, who find the infamous gap of tape in Richard Nixon's White House recordings. Mervish and I discuss the film's thematic relevance to today, how his filmic influences, including mentor Robert Altman, played into its conception, and what the efficacy of political art is in today's climate. Here's our conversation. The title of your new film is 18 and a Half, which refers to the infamous gap in Richard Nixon's White House tapes. But I have to imagine there was some intentionality with the title also being sort of a Fellini homage, right, to Eight and a Half? Well, I certainly knew about it, yeah. And Fellini was was a smart fella. Uh, he knew that if you start a film, uh, if if you start a title with a number, it will always be alphabetically the first thing in any listing. So, uh, yeah, he was a sharp dude. Um, but no, there's not really two. I mean, they both both films do take place at a seaside resort. And that's about the beginning and the end of the similarity. Well, they both start with kind of sinister scenes in a car. Yeah, that's true, yeah. Alternate world where you fall on a political track. Mm -hmm. I mean, is there an alternate world where you followed that through instead of ending up in the arts? There is. And, uh, yeah, because I I grew up in Omaha, but I went to college in St. Louis, majored in history and political science, but did a little bit of film while I was there. But I went to a school that didn't have a film program. I did some summer classes at UCLA, which smelled like, eucalyptus and opportunity. And, uh, but then I, I interned in D.C. and then got a job in D.C. after I graduated um, initially as a journalist and then as a speechwriter for U.S. Senator Tom Harkin from Iowa. Um, and then after a couple of years, I realized if you stay in D.C. long enough, by the time you hit 30, someone just gives you a three-piece suit and a law degree. And I was like, I'm not sure if I quite want that. But um, so I applied to film school, got into USC this time and uh, and went there. But there is an alternate reality because the guy that took my place in that um, in that uh, speechwriting job wound up being a speechwriter for Bill Clinton starting a whole big company and he's still a very close friend of mine and is one of our biggest investors on this film oh, so wow, okay. either way i still would have been making 18 and a half so <laughs> what, what were the things that were pushing you away from politics in the film uh well i just always in, enjoyed film and then when i worked for harkin we it, i was kind of in charge of a lot of the speeches that were recorded on video like in a, you know the dubuque Boy Scout troop needed a little speech, we would just record it in a video studio in the basement of the Capitol and and send them a VHS tape. 
Um, that's kind of how that worked back then. Um, so I was hanging out in like recording booths and, and studios a lot, even while I was working in the Senate, in the Capitol. So the guys in the booth would be like, hey, you should really go to film school. You know, not that we were doing particularly creative things, but it, it kind of kept that, that side going. And um, and I had done what I wanted to do in Washington. I was like, all right, let's let's see what the next adventure is. And, well, it's interesting, though, because, I mean, a lot of people, uh, when they get into politics, it can sometimes be disturbing or the cynicism <laughs> of it is something where they maybe don't want to be sucked into it, right? Uh, yeah. Get in, but don't get it on you ever. Right, you know? right. Yeah, that's a good point. I was very lucky. I worked for a politician I respected, still do respect, um, Harkin, and uh, and we were doing interesting work. It was right around the time he was uh, the lead sponsor of the ADA, which passed while we were there. So, you know, it was a, it was a big uh, accomplishment. So I didn't have a lot of the cynicism that I saw around me, but I could see that as a you know potential. But yeah, I just wanted to go back out to California and uh, try my hand at, at filmmaking and, and see what happened. Well, and the, the fact that your movie is about Watergate and it's coming out as the January 6th commission is delivering a lot of, I don't know, what would maybe be smoking guns or bombshells at a different mm -hmm. time, but now how they land is just so different. Uh, I wonder if we could maybe connect it back even to Fellini, right, this idea of surrealism, because it's weird how, it's, I don't know, it's probably hopelessly pretentious to say American <laughs> politics are getting Fellini-esque or something. But no, I think you're right. Yeah. <laughs> but, like, they're, they're, so, they're much dumber, I feel like, than a lot of surrealism as we know it. Yeah. But what's interesting is, uh, like, you know, there's these details. Like, there's one from the New York Times yesterday that as President Trump was throwing a temper tantrum on January 6th, quote, his staff resorted to summoning an aide nicknamed the Music Man to play his favorite show tunes that they knew would so soothe him, <laughs> including memory from the Broadway musical Cats. And, like, it's weird because... You can't make that up. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it engages these different emotional reactions because it's funny, right? That's just so ridiculous. It is, it's yeah. funny, but the context is very disturbing. And so I think a lot of our politics is in that surreal space of, like, I'm having a lot of reactions that con contradict and it maybe dulls the impact of what I should be reacting to. Right, right. So I don't know. And is, is the surrealism of today, like, do you see the politics of today as something you were able to channel through the movie? Were you reacting to it in that way? Oh, definitely, yeah. I mean, the the whole idea for 18 and a Half, the movie we did, um, it was kind of birthed on the day after Trump got elected president in 2016. Um, I was shooting my last film, Bernard and Huey, in New York. Um, we had the election. I then went out to see Jules Pfeiffer, uh, who, who wrote Bernard and Huey, and he had won a Pulitzer Prize for um, his political cartoons for The Village Voice in the 70s, largely for Nixon and Watergate. So the whole conversation was, you know, hey, what about this new guy? How much is he going to be like Nixon? And, you know, we survived that. How, you know, how, how many impeachments could we possibly have? And... Um, <laughs> And and then that that night I stayed at my because uh, uh, Pfeiffer lives at the tip of Long Island in Shelter Island, um, this little uh, town out there. And then you take the ferry over to um, I took the ferry that night to stay with my friend Terry, uh, who runs this motel that his grandparents had built in the 50s and 60s. And, and it's still kind of preserved, looks like 1974. And they'd shot a lot of music videos and, and, and fashion shoots there, but no one had ever shot a feature. And Terry said, well, if you come up with an idea you know, everyone can, can, cast and crew can stay here. We're closed in the winter. And so we had just been talking about Nixon and about Trump. And um, I was like, hmm, Nixon, 1974, perfect location. We should make a Watergate movie and somehow figured out a way to make a Watergate movie that could take place at a seaside motel. So the, the roots of it are really there. But, uh, but thematically, I mean, you hit the nail on the head about yesterday's testimony. It was, a, you know, this is a Hutchinson, a young woman, you know, in, in the Nixon White House, 25-year-old, exposed to all this shenanigans and has the courage to come forward and, and, and speak truth to power. That is exactly the plot of 18 and a Half, where our young character – 25-year-old Connie, played by the great Willa Fitzgerald, is, is a low-level employee in the White House who comes up with something, the 18-and-a-half-minute gap in our case, and wants to leak it to the press. So it's thematically, yesterday's testimony was like, whoa, this is exactly our movie. <laughs> so it is very surreal. But, um, but we kind of knew, you know, the nice thing about doing a period film, you know, uh, is that it allows you to comment on and be relevant and resonate with anything in the future. You know, you can read 
Trump into a Nixon allegory. But, you know, we showed the film in, in Brazil at the Sao Paulo International Film Festival, and they were all like, oh, this is really about Bolsonaro. <laughs> or we showed it in England at the Manchester Film Festival, where I won the Best Director Prize. And they were like, oh, this is just like Boris Johnson and his goofy scandal, you know. So it's that's the nice thing about doing kind of, you know, period movies, but being able to comment on contemporary things. Yeah, I, I sometimes find it difficult to wrap my mind around how things played in the moment in history versus now. So, like, Nixon seems subtle compared to Trump to me in a lot of the <laughs> things he did. But maybe at the time he was, I mean, in, in the movie, yeah, even, oh, it was sort of time. like, oh, they're all just idiots, right? This sort of goofball yeah, yeah. Uh, conclusion that they come to, right, right? right? Do you think it's that different? No, I mean, it's it's similar in the sense that, you know, Nixon was really undone by his own paranoia. You know, that was that was kind of his fatal flaw. And and he wound up bugging everybody else, bugging himself. <laughs> you know, that's where these tapes came from. It's it's ironic. But that that was kind of it. And in the same way, you know, you can make all kinds of comparisons to to Trump. And but but also what you see that is similar is the um, is that no matter who you have as president or, or there is this coterie of people that will always be incredibly loyal to them. And that loyalty drives them to do ridiculous things. And, and and that is also, I think, one of the things that you see in both in both cases is that, you know, if you surround yourself with crazies, you're going to do crazy things. So um, and, and I think that's a similarity between both circumstances. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Dan Mervish, director of the new Watergate thriller comedy, 18 and a half. What do you think? Join the conversation on social media or call in with a brief voicemail with what issue is on your mind to 402-881-0089 for a chance to be featured on one of our upcoming shows. Well, and so for casting Nixon, even though Nixon mm-hmm. does not appear on screen, you've got Bruce Campbell yes, and you've yes. got his regular collaborator Ted Raimi in there mm-hmm. as well. So, I mean, when you're thinking about that, how do you capture the essence of somebody who can be Nixon? You go for somebody who, I mean, Campbell's sort of big. He can do campy. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we think about some of the things we joke about Trump, right? Like Campbell has some of those qualities as well. And yeah. He played Reagan on Fargo. Exactly, yeah. So he I, had just done that. Yeah. yeah. How did you land on Bruce Campbell? Well, Bruce Nixon? is someone we had um, talked about working even on the last film, Bernard and Huey. And then on this film, he was originally going to play one of the other parts, a part that Vondi Curtis Hall winds up playing. Uh, but he had just had glaucoma surgery and his doctor said, don't do any you know, fight scenes or things like that. So, and I was like, well, I'm, I, you're, I'm not losing you again, Bruce. So let's come <laughs> up with something. And then I suggested he, he play Nixon. And he was like, oh, that's perfect. Because it turns out when he was 14, he spent the summer watching the uh, Senate Watergate hearings a- instead of playing baseball. And he was obsessed with Nixon and Watergate at the time. And he and Ted Raimi have actually done some comedy bits where actually Ted played Nixon and Bruce played Haldeman. So he was very familiar with with Nixon. And, and uh, you know, he's working his way through the presidents, first Reagan and, <laughs> and now Nixon. But, you know, I really wanted someone that could not just do an impersonation of Nixon. You, I mean, you can get Rich Little, who's still alive in Vegas, to do that if you wanted. But, um, but someone like Bruce who had you know his own innate sense of gravitas and humor and irony that he just brings with him you know whenever he speaks and and I think that worked out really well with our film and you even snuck a groovy in there didn't you oh yeah there's a lot of groovy in there yeah yeah which is of course his nickname but uh groovy Bruce um but yeah no we use uh we use groovy a lot um, and then we had, you know, the great John Cryer is in the film. Um, uh, Cryer, I've known for 30 years. He was actually a fan of my first film, Omaha the Movie. And so we stayed in touch. And this was, and again, this was the first time that was uh, we could work together. But also, honestly, it, it's a, it was an easy ask for actors. Like, hey, do you want to do a couple hours of voiceover sometime in the future? Sure, yeah, Dan, whatever, you know. Um, little did we know that we would wind up starting production on March 3rd, 2020. What could possibly go wrong in March of 2020? <laughs> and um, and we had to shut down 11 days into the shoot. Uh, we were the last film shooting in North America, as we found out. Um, and then, you know, we took a six-month healthy hiatus or pandemic pause. Uh, and then during that time, we realized, you know what, we have this voice performance that we're going to do. We, we're going to do it in post-production at some point. We're like, why don't we just do it now on Zoom? All these actors have, you know, decent microphones. Everyone knows how to do Zoom. And actors were sitting around at home not doing anything. They couldn't perform on stage or in screen, anywhere. 
So it was a really fun opportunity to this, do this little self-contained 18-and-a-half-minute radio drama basically in, within the movie on, on Zoom. And they were all over. Uh, Ted was in Canada. Bruce was in Oregon. John was in L.A. And, um, and it was, it was a, a really fun experience to do that at the height of the, you know, the first lockdown. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, six months later, we were able to go back and finish shooting the last four days of, of, of the actual shoot. How different was it when you went back? Did you have to re-envision things, or was it basically what you would have been shooting anyway? We, it was pretty much what we would have been shooting anyway. We were very lucky. We had already shot our kissing scenes, fighting scenes, dancing scenes, anything that, you know, when, when the Screen Actors Guild and Directors Guild came up with COVID-safe protocols at first, those were all forbidden. You couldn't have actors within six feet of each other. So we were very lucky we had already shot all those scenes, and we never had crowd scenes anyway because an independent film. You can't afford a crowd. Um, and we were doing a lot of things right anyway. You know, we had our own self-contained bubble. We were all staying at this motel by ourselves. Everyone had their own bathrooms. Uh, so we were pretty lucky. But it did allow us, that six-month gap allowed me to edit, because I was the editor, uh, you know, 80% of the movie. We could kind of s- tweak the the other, the last four days, a little bit of the script. Like, oh, do we need a little bit more of this or a little bit less of that? Uh, we also worked on the music quite a lot during that time because musicians around the world were sitting around not doing anything. So it's like, oh, we found a guy in Mexico City and, and an entire horn ensemble. Great. Let's do horns in Mexico City and, and, and you know, beam them in remotely. And um, my great uh, composing partner, Luis Guerra, was able to find a Brazilian singer in L.A. who also performed at a studio in Brazil. And we, at, we wrote more songs. I wrote lyrics to a lot of the songs in the film. And so we so we added a couple songs for the actors to sing. It's not a musical, but it, it's close. <laughs> um, so it was things like that that we were able to add during those last four days of production that I think we, we probably never would have done or had the time or, or, or inclination to think even think about doing. Well, that's kind of like a mainstay of being an independent filmmaker, right? Mm-hmm. Is you're going to get a lot of uh, unanticipatable problems and yeah. you have to figure out, okay, well, how do we move forward from yeah. there? And sometimes that can lead to innovations that you would – that. You're happy you came up with, right? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. No, it's it's uh, yeah. Uh, pandemic is a mother of invention. Is that is that how that goes? <laughs> I think so. Well, so as far as uh, some of the themes of the movie, I feel like you've updated the sense of heroism that exists in something like All the President's Men for today. Where, like we were kind of saying before, journalism almost feels a lot more like impotent rage. And I think <laughs> the impotent rage of your characters, even in some yeah. sense, uh, that strikes me as maybe more 2020s than it does the time it's depicting. Uh, you know, like, I, I don't know that we see journalists as the freedom crusaders who can save the country. I don't know if the best piece of journalism makes that much of a difference anymore, right? Were you thinking about this as you were constructing the movie? A little bit. I mean, I have a background in journalism myself, and so, uh, and I also consulted with a good friend of mine who works at the Washington Post um, to really kind of navigate that back and forth at the beginning of the movie. So it's not a spoiler. You know, our, our main character Connie is trying to leak this tape to a reporter, and, and what is what is that negotiation like between someone who wants to leak something but is still hesitant about it, and a reporter who wants the story but still has to you know, work with the, the, the source of the story. And, uh, and that was fascinating, kind of digging deep into that relationship and having a journalist friend who, who really had the experience doing that. Um, but also my own experience, you know, working in Washington and, and being a young 20-something in Washington, uh, both as a journalist first and, and then working in government. Um, and you realize that the 20-somethings, 20-somethings in Washington have access to amazing power, you know, that if leaked in the right hands or the wrong hands could could make a real difference in the world. Um, and so I was trying to explore some of those themes with the film. Well, yeah. I mean, so do you think then that <laughs> do you, you, so you still believe that journalism can make this big difference, that oh, ultimately yeah. it can reach the people? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, although, you know, people will have to watch the film to, to find <laughs> out. Um <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, so I adore Robert Altman. Um, mm-hmm. His 70s movies in particular, they just merge scope, rhythm, humanity, humor, everything, basically everything I've ever looked for in a movie. Even things I didn't know to look for in a movie seamlessly. And, you know, like I watch McCabe and Mrs. Miller in Nashville yeah. all the time, and they're just magic to me, right? Mm-hmm. So how did you get involved with him? 
Well, uh, so my first film, Omaha the Movie, I, would, I was a student at USC, graduate student there, um, but I wanted to shoot a film back in Omaha, where I grew up. Um, and I had a lot of uh, friends that were actors, uh, people like Jill Anderson, Houston Walkinshaw, that are still actors here in, in Omaha. Um, but I didn't. I needed a local producer, and this is before people were making independent films in Nebraska. Uh, so the film commission introduced me to Dana Altman. They said, "Oh, he Dana works in commercials, but he wants to get involved with features." And by the way, his grandfather's Robert Altman. And I said, "Dana, you're hired." Uh, so um, Dana is, is to this day one of my producing partners and, and closest friends. And so when we started making the film, you know, we called, you know. Uh, uh, Robert Altman and Bob and asked him for advice and he told us you know 90% of casting is is 90% uh, of directing is casting things like that but but one of the things you know the most important thing I think he taught us was um, you know set a start date tell everyone the trains leaving the station you on board or aren't you and and stick to that start date and and make the film you know and it, and it's better to make the low budget version than not to make the big budget version, you know, because you're you're waiting and pushing your start dates and pushing and pushing. Um, and I think that to this day is still the biggest lesson we learned from him. I mean, there's a lot of technical stuff we learned, too, about, you know, miking each actor individually and, and uh, you know, have running sound, except running their audio on different tracks. I mean, there's a lot of that technical stuff that, you know, that also means you're going to get better performances from the actors. And these are all things that we, we've incorporated, in, and you certainly see it in 18 and a half. Um, uh, w you know, because that allows overlapping dialogue. You never have to do ADR, which is which is you know dubbing afterwards. Um, and then, you know, then his use of the zoom lens, which we do a lot of in this film, although stylistically it's a little bit of a different effect than than what he does. But it's, there's a lot of zooms. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> put it that way. I wanted to talk about the zooms because yeah. I think. You know, there's so many slow zooms in and out in his scenes, right? Moving yeah. in and out, sometimes introducing, sometimes it'll all be one take. And just the rhythm of it is so unusual. And I don't know if it's just because we're so conditioned to cut now that people don't try right. to experiment with it. Um, but it just creates this sort of like, I don't know, it's like a dance and the way that the musicality almost to the mm -hmm, scenes. Mm -hmm. Particularly, I think of McCabe and Mrs. Miller and some of mm -hmm. those, like that opening part where I don't even understand what a lot of people are saying in that first right, couple right. scenes of the movie. But the, the visuals themselves are so intoxicating. And in 18 and a half, you do use a lot of zooming. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, how do you decide where and when to zoom and how do you know what impact that will have? Well, part of it is a, it, there's a, a technical challenge. We were using old lenses. I mean, first of all, I said to my cast and crew, we're only going to use um, creative techniques that could have been used in 1974. So no, no cam because I was 76, no drone shots, you know. So um, even the music was all instruments from, from that era. All, I mean, in our case, we went with Bossa Nova. But, um, but the zoom, lens, zoom lenses from that era... Were, are slow lenses that you need a lot of light to make them work. So we could only, and on Altman films, they could afford a lot of lights. We could not. <laughs> so we could only really use a true zoom lens in, um, in the ex day exterior scenes. So on the interior scenes, we're using prime lenses, but then, you know, d uh, digitally, I could do um, zooming in post-production which is something that you actually could do and, 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 and was done in the 60s and 70s, and Altman did it a little bit then called optical zooms. Now it's digital, but it's the same idea that you're blowing up the image after you've already shot it. So there's a lot, there's a lot of that. But then when you combine it and mix it and match it with the, the true optical zoom on the lens, it's hard to know where one stops and one begins, and, and sometimes you're doing both, and, and, and I did. Do, you know, there's some shots where we do both. Um, so anyway, so it's a way of using digital tricks to accomplish something that looks like it was from the 70s, sort of. Yeah, but like, so like when you're shooting a scene, so it's two oh, people yeah, talking or whatever, right. how do you know what how rhythm you know of zooms you want so, and how they flow? Part of it is really knowing the actors. Um, and, and if you have time to rehearse, great. Uh, uh, but knowing which combinations of actors can sustain a long scene um, because they know their lines, they have a good rhythm, they have a good chemistry, and knowing which other actors, you know, we have one actor in the film who was cast 36 hours before shooting and didn't have time to memorize her <laughs> lines. I mean, she's a great actress. Um, so, okay, so your scenes, we're going to shoot in a different way. We're going to shoot with traditional coverage, or actually untraditional, like um, some, there, there's... 
um, a monologue that Kathy Curtin has in the film that's done as a jump cutting style, which is something I've done in at least in all my films uh, to a certain extent. But that allows someone who hasn't memorized their lines, for example, because it's a two page monologue to do multiple takes and not worry about it, you know. Um, whereas I knew that um, scenes, uh, two shot scenes uh, or, or two person scenes with Willa Fitzgerald and John McGarro, who had a little bit more lead time on the film, um, you know, I could sustain those scenes for like five minutes. And so th so then part of it is knowing what you have, who you have, where you are, um, what locations you're in and and having trust that your crew and your cast can pull off those long scenes and then, you know, then make those creative decisions with, okay, when do we want to zoom? What are the moments that we want to sort of, you know, zoom in on or zoom back from, um, you know, creatively? Uh, but but part of it is just being flexible about it and not being dogmatic and say, well, I must have a 15-minute one-shot here. It's like, well, let's – no, you don't have to. You can, but you don't have to, and, and you shouldn't, you know – let that, you know, I mean, you could spend a week trying to choreograph that. And if you don't get it right, you've wasted a week. So you need to be flexible and, and, and know, you know, the elements you're, you're working with. But. Yeah. And that, I mean, Altman was a big proponent of that too, right? Mm -hmm. That he's going to play with a lot of it until he finds what works in the moment. Yeah. Yeah. The, the difference is Altman films tended to be much more improvised. So he would, and, and having worked with some actors that had been in his films, I, I know that, you know, he would give them just the broadest strokes of what the script was and say, all right, you go and you don't know when you're going to be on camera because his zooms were so far away and because everyone was being recorded on mic. Our film is very different. Our film is, is much more uh, structured to the script. I mean, it's because it's very plot heavy and and uh, and everyone's stuck to the script. So there's very little improvisation in in kind of the big sense. There's the, the sort of the small improvisation of the ums and ahs and and overlapping dialogue. There's a lot of that. Um, so in that sense, it's different from an from an Altman film. Well, and I think in, in thematically, even though you don't have a big cast of characters like something like Nashville, you do have a lot of different types of characters. And yeah. so there's mm -hmm. clashes right. of philosophy, right. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so you have sort of like these different people that I think he did a lot and I think you're doing here. So it's a juxtaposition of, I don't know, there's like this almost celebration of all the different types of people that can coexist. Mm -hmm. And even the clash itself, I think there's right. sometimes even like a joyous, funny clash that's happening. Yeah. And then that's sort of like there's uh, even uh, you know the zoom is a metaphor as well as you zoom out more you see some of the sinister powerful forces mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. threaten it that might pounce on it right and so you're trying to make this work in the movie it starts off kind of sinister and then it sort of gets into a more uh, almost mellow but there, there's a little bit of urgency but like a mellowness for a little yeah. bit before the thriller part sort of amps up how did you come across the way to make those dis dissonances between certain types of characters and different types of tones fit together. Right. Well, p part of it, just getting back to the characters, is we wanted to explore the different worlds that were out there in 1974, which is a very specific time. It's it's in the 70s, but it's pre-disco, so it's but post-hippie. So the hippies that were there were still, you know, are they in cults? What you know, what are they? Um, and then meanwhile, you have the World War II generation, um, which is represented in the film. And, and how do they feel? And then you have, you know, people in their 20s in, in different circumstances. Um, uh, but in terms of the tonal shifts, uh, that's where the music really comes into play. That's where we, we wanted to lean into. It's all, it's all original bossa nova music. And bossa nova is nice because you can kind of tweak it a little bit. My composer was explaining this to me. It, to be dramatic, to be thriller, to be spy, to be comedic, um, while still maintaining the same kind of you know rhythms and melodies. And so that, that really helped. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I always approach this thing as sort of a... Uh, you know, the original pitch was Three Days of the Condor meets Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, but a little funnier than either of those. <laughs> so and then, you know, and then you get your actors and you see what they bring to it and and tonally how they, you know, deal with things and, and bring different flavors to it that you wouldn't even even expect it or, or plan for. Um, but part of it was we, we kind of went for the looking glass uh, Alice in Wonderland analogy. You have those very straight characters at the beginning of the movie, and then as soon as they eat their Wonder Bread, um, things start to get weird. <laughs> and, uh, and that's when, uh, when Connie uh, kind of goes through the looking glass. 
I'm talking with Dan Mervish, director of the new Watergate comedy thriller 18 and a Half, which stars Willa Fitzgerald and John Magaro as a transcriptionist and reporter who find the infamous gap of tape in Richard Nixon's White House recordings. Let us know what you think. Follow Riverside Chats on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Stay tuned for the rest of the conversation after this break. We have a lot of hours of content here on Riverside Chats now. Our backlog has over 100 episodes. We're expanding into live events. And we have an exciting future for the show that we hope to be able to get to you. To make the show as good as it can be and to continue to give you the kinds of conversations that you listen for. The reason why you subscribed in the first place. To hear coverage of arts, ideas, politics, whatever it is that brings you here every time. Please consider becoming a supporter of the show by making a sustaining monthly donation of $1, $5, whatever you can afford and really whatever you think the show is worth which may be a zero, in which case, ouch, but okay. If you are interested in becoming a supporter, please look in the podcast notes. There should be a link in there that you can find that gives you all the information you need. Otherwise, thank you for considering supporting the show, and more more importantly, thank you for listening. And welcome back to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. Make sure to check out the backlog of Riverside Chats episodes wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever your favorite app is. And while you're there, please leave us a review. Today I'm talking with Dan Mervish, director of the new Watergate comedy thriller 18 and a Half, which stars Willa Fitzgerald and John Magaro. It's about a transcriptionist and reporter who find the infamous gap of tape in Richard Nixon's White House recordings. Here's the rest of our conversation. So Mike Nichols in the Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, mm-hmm. I think that's just an amazing way of developing all of this tension from so little that's actually, I mean, a lot's happening on a character basis, but just right. a bunch of people sitting in a room, right? Yeah, yeah. How, what did you take away from that? What's sort of the way to keep that tension and to figure out, the, again, the rhythm? Well, part of it was figuring out because we have yeah, there's a there's a there's a big chunk of the movie where it's four people having dinner, and so how what is the challenge cinematically to keep it exciting and interesting and, and when and, and both in the choreography of the actors themselves when do they get up when do they move around when do they move into a different room did they start dancing at one point, um, but also then uh, editing styles change within that within that scene. Um, music changes, uh, so that is a constant challenge in, in, in the writing of it um, because we knew we wanted to be there, but we also knew we wanted to keep it interesting for audiences, and hopefully most of them seem to be entertained by it um, and, uh, and, and the tonal shifts within, within that thing. So, uh, yeah, and part of it is just seeing where the location is and what can you do with that location. I mean, we were lucky we were in a big enough cabin on, on, in, for that scene that it, it had interesting things in it and interesting things we could do. Um, but yeah, it's just one of the challenges making indie films, you know. Um, but there is some talk of turning the whole thing into a play. Uh, oh, really? Which is interesting. Yeah, so that's uh, we're exploring some of those conversations right now. Um, because it is, you know, at the end of the day, it's a few characters in a few different locations, It's which is perfect for independent film, but it's also perfect for a play. So that would be cool. That would know? be cool, yeah. yeah. So Three Days of the Condor, but funny. <laughs> that's got to be kind of a tough pitch because, like, that's a movie where I don't know if it works if it's that much sillier, right? Like, it's yeah. it's, it's grand in some ways. The right. genre elements are a little bit campy. But for the most part, you have to believe the threat. And so you're trying to get this thing where the, the writing is fairly witty throughout the whole movie, Thank right? You. And a little bit stylized at times um, where, like, some of the cuts are going to be based on when there's someone saying something funny, right? Yeah. Um, so <laughs> was there a point where you're sort of like, okay – Am I undercutting the suspense with the humor, or did you know that those two can work together? Well, I didn't know, but um, but I think that's kind of just my own style coming through. I've always enjoyed sort of the mix of you know humor and and not humor, <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, and and trying to dial those things in. It's is it's not easy, and it's a challenge on every film, and um, certainly on this one. But you know, when when it comes to Nixon and Watergate. Like, it's hard not to be funny. Uh, I mean, when you listen to the real tapes, they really are kind of ridiculous. And and, and it goes back to the earlier conversation we had about that. Um, that yeah, they were just intrinsically funny. It's it's hard to do it straight. It, it's just, <laughs> it, it really is. So, um, but, but, you know, one of the earliest ideas I had in my mind uh, for the film was, you know, the, the what is the least romantic tape a couple could be making love to? <laughs> and I was like, ah. Nixon talking. Um, so, 
yeah, so we play with it without spoiling the movie. That was one idea I had. <laughs> uh, well, it, I think it, it works on a level where what we're talking about before is when things are so absurd that they're funny or they're so ridiculous yeah. or dumb even that they're funny, your guard is let down when you're laughing, right? Yeah. And so I think the audience and the characters alike sort of like as things get a little sillier, you are not expecting the turn. You're not expecting when Mm -hmm. the threat reappears. Mm -hmm. And so I think that works on two levels, right? One, just on narratively, it works really well for your third act. Yeah. But then just on a societal level, I worry sometimes when things are too entertaining that we we do just sort of let the threat sneak up behind us. Oh, absolutely. And that goes back to the testimony we've heard this week, like as ridiculous as, you know, throwing ketchup at the wall and, <laughs> you know, Toons is the cat trying to reach for the steering wheel. You know, it's, there's a lot going on in, in the it, with the fate of the Republic. So, but, you know, that this was something else I learned from watching Altman films, you know, like A Wedding is a perfect example where it's a really funny movie and then all of a sudden it turns really, really dark, you know, <laughs> and you can do that in films and, uh, and some people are going to like it and other people are going to be are not going to like it but that's okay you know that's it's not going to be there for everyone you know but part of it was also my approach to historical fiction too Um, you know uh, Tarantino for example can take these historical fiction stories and by the end of the movie history is completely rewritten you know there's the you know Hitler does this or Manson does that and we're on a completely different timeline I wanted to do I think a more traditional approach to speculative plausible historical fiction I'm not an academic I don't know exactly what it's called where you have this kind of little loop of historical characters in this um, or of fictional characters in this historical timeline but then by the end of the movie or the story um, everything is kind of reset to where we are which means that um and that, again, without spoiling the ending, it, it, it forces, you know, certain outcomes that, uh, that are, are, are predestined to be the case, which is basically that there is no 18-and-a-half-minute gap, or it, it is deleted. Nobody know, To this day, nobody knows what it is. So, um, so that, that was always kind of a guiding principle in the writing of the, of the, of the film with, with my writing partner, Daniel, um, was how do we kind of reset history to the timeline that we know now? How much are you operating on a level of thinking about, okay, we want to tell a compelling story, and how much are you thinking about, okay, I want to actually comment on America as a concept or bringing some of your political background in in, as far as commentary goes? Well, at any given point in making decisions, creative decisions on the script and with the cast, in editing, it we always defaulted to the characters. We are telling this story about this young woman, Connie, played by Willa Fitzgerald, and and her journey that she goes on. Like it's, you know, when presented with the option, do we do we focus on her and her character and her, you know, I mean, it's a bit of a rom com in the middle, um, or do we lean into the poli- the politics and the and the Watergate of it? We always defaulted to character. It is a character story. So you can come in not knowing about Watergate, not caring about Watergate. Doesn't matter what your politics is coming into it. Um, it's it's really you're going to hopefully appreciate and enjoy you know this the character and 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 her journey and so that was you know at the end of the day that was what I always decided on. It seems like the legacy of Watergate meant something different in the past than maybe it does now. Uh, like I think about this idea that there was this shock that Nixon would say if the president does it, it's not illegal. Right. Yeah. Whereas now I think like half of Congress is basically like yeah that seems fine to me that seems fair. Uh, so, like, I mean, what, what, is, what does Watergate even mean? Would it even happen? Would it matter that much today? Well, I, th- I think what – the reason people are still talking about Watergate 50 years later, and this is the 50th anniversary of, of the initial break-in, is that it was kind of the last, you know, undercutting of, of American authority, you know, after the Vietnam War, after the hippie movement, after, you know, uh, uh, all these things. Finally, Watergate undercut everyone's assumptions about trusting in authority and authority figures. And it was really the, the, the birth of cynicism really started, I think, with Watergate, or that was the last nail in the coffin. And then everyone was like, all right, that's it. We don't trust anyone. I think that's why it is still a resonant scandal at the time. And the interesting thing was, and, and, we, and the film goes into this a little bit, Nixon had plenty of other scandals. I mean, there was ITT, there was issues with Howard Hughes, there, I mean, there's, and, and the, which we do go into in the film, but there's other things, milk 
prices, uh, all kinds of things. I mean, ITT was on the front page of, of newspapers until Watergate pushed it to the back pages. But it, that would have been the scandal that people remembered Nixon by, not, you know, because there were just so many of them. But, but Watergate was the one that I think, and especially this 18 and a half minute cap, when, when America saw his, his, uh, his secretary, Rosemary Woods, you know, try to reach and, and claim that she could, you know, delete the, the tape with her foot on one side and her hand on the other side. That was when people said, no, nah, all right, no, we don't believe these guys. Someone's lying to us. So I think that's why it is still, you know, that's why people are making Watergate films and not teapot dome scandals about, you know, films about Harding. <laughs> so, uh, Well, it, it's interesting to me as well, and maybe I'm reading too much into it, but you have a lot of conversations about marriage in the movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And it felt like it's not a stretch to say, you know, when you're talking about what happens if you disagree about everything all the time, that that also is sort of talking about the country, right? Yeah, I hadn't thought of that, but what, right. What is the nature of the union that we have sometimes is a relevant question, I think, right. especially as we talk about polarization being as bad as it is, as people say, oh, it just seems like another civil war is about to happen, right? Uh, I don't know if it's quite that bad, but, I mean, this movie seems like it's interested on that on multiple levels. Like, what is the nature of unions? Why are we together in the first place, right? Do you, do you see that as a comment on America at all? I do now. Yeah. <laughs> so, no, I think that's very smart of you to figure out. Um, yeah, I, I hadn't really thought of it that way. But, yeah, we do have commentary on marriage and, and because there are these two couples in the film. There's this older couple played brilliantly by, by Vondi Curtis-Hall and Kathy Curtin, who are the, the, the World War II generation couple. And we find out there's, there's a lot going on with them. But, but they have this, this true love for one another. Um, uh, but I, you know, I mean, the 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 country was just as I don't I don't know just as polarized, but I think just as polarized then as it is now, and in similar ways, people kind of forget about it. But um, but yeah, the country has always been polarized. I mean, it goes back to the founding of the country. Um, you know, they were, I mean, you know, the the, the duel with Hamilton, and <laughs> you know, they were, um, th- you know, going back to that. So I don't. Um, yeah, I mean, it's worse now, but is it much worse? Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. Um, but I think you're right. I mean, I think the, the uh, yeah, we have the line in there about, uh, you know, uh, agreeing to disagree. And, um, you know, and it was interesting doing the research into into the Watergate era. It was really only when Nixon's own party came and confronted him and Goldwater showed up at the White House and said, no, you're done. You know, it was only then that that he was done. But up until then, it was a really polarized discussion. I mean, there was, it was just as it is now. Um, you know, the Republicans didn't support the Watergate hearings at all um, until eventually they did. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Dan Mervish, director of the new Watergate comedy thriller, 18 and a Half. Join the conversation on social media or call in with a brief voicemail with what issues on your mind to 402-881-0089. And we may play it in one of our upcoming shows. Was it daunting for you since Altman obviously made his Nixon movie, Secret Honor? Yeah. Absolutely. Was that in your mind at all as you made this one? Well, definitely. I mean, and um, Philip, uh, what's his name, um, who was in Secret Honor, just died. Um, Philip Seymour. F- Philip Baker big, big Hall, big, thank you. Yeah, <laughs> nice was an amazing actor. And I mean, that is such a sort of unique one-person performance um, that I wasn't thinking so much about that. And, and, that's, and that is a serious performance. That is a dramatic performance. What I do think about just in terms of why and how and when he made that film is something Altman did, which, which is, uh, still always strikes me, especially when I come to Omaha and I visit Dana. Dana has a, an amazing collection of all of Altman's posters in his studio office uh, just a few blocks from here. Um, and you realize that Altman had these amazing highs and lows in his career, you know, uh, the, you know, from MASH and Nashville, and then he would make Popeye, which was a colossal flop. But what he did is, is he never stopped working. He, you know, and Secret Honor is a perfect case where he collaborated with, I think, University of Michigan or Michigan State. And he's like, all right, uh, let's get together with a bunch of students, bring in one actor, and let's shoot a movie. And they made Secret Honor, you know, and then they would make these incredible films that not that many people saw necessarily. They weren't big hits. They weren't critical hits. But he just kept making movies. He was incredibly prolific. And, and to me, that's the lesson from Secret <laughs> Honor, which is not a lesson most people would draw from that film. But, um, but I know for, for uh, Bruce Campbell, I mean, he definitely looked at all the, you know, iconic performances of Nixon, you know, from, um, well, 
yeah, from all the people that have played Nixon over the years, you know, in in in, in all kinds of films. Um, and what he brought to it, I think, is a unique voice for Nixon and for that performance. Yeah, I mean, so as far as being prolific, even on a low budget level, it seems like maybe we're a little bit out of the woods in terms of what movies look like post pandemic, or as we just adjust to the pandemic, mm-hmm. right? I imagine it was stressful to have to release a movie when it's not clear if theaters are rebounding or especially if the art house theater will yeah. rebound, right? Yeah. What's that been like? Well, we we started showing the film at film festivals last fall and kind of strategically and somewhat by luck, uh, we, we, we aimed for this trough between the Delta and the Omicron variants last fall where there was about a two-month gap where festivals were live because they'd all been virtual for about a year and a half. And so we premiered at the, at the Woodstock Film Festival. We played in Wichita. We won a prize. We won various awards. We played in Sao Paulo. Um, and then in the spring, there was another trough between the Omicron variant and World War III, where, again, we played about 10 festivals around the world. And um, and, and they were live festivals because I really enjoy that engagement with an audience. And this is why I'm so excited to come back to Omaha and screen the film at film streams. I'm going to be doing big Q&A on Friday. Um, uh, and, and so we were able to find a distributor that gave us a 60-city theatrical release. And, and again, it has been tough to get audiences back because now we're, you know, we're in the trough between you know, COVID and monkeypox or whatever. You know, we don't know what's next. But, um, but what's great is that you know, audiences have been coming out if they feel safe. And if they don't feel safe, that's okay. It's coming out on video on demand in next month. You know, so there's going to be an opportunity to see it there. But for me, as a filmmaker, I love to see a film with an audience. You hear the laughs, the shrieks, the, you know, the boos. No, there are not too many boos. (laughs) But, um, you know, and that and and doing the Q&A and answering questions afterwards, it is it is I see it like a live performance. You know, it is all part and parcel of that engagement. You know, a film. Anyone can make a film, but if nobody sees it, it's like the tree in the forest. Is it? Did it really exist? Um, so it only a film only exists if an audience sees it, um, however they see it. Uh, but but I mean, you know, everyone's like, oh, let's oh, we should all make streaming films now. The problem with streaming content is that there's zero engagement between the filmmaker and the audience. You know, you could have a film on Netflix and 100 million people would see it, and you wouldn't know. You know, like because they don't report the numbers, you don't report the numbers. There's no Q and A. There's no director's commentary the you know there's literally no engagement between the filmmaker and, and the and the audience so i i really enjoy making small films or relatively small films and and being able to tour with them you know much as a musician or 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 an actor would tour you know with with performances um for me that's fun that's part of the process that's part of the the creation of the you know the art i guess well and as a co-founder of slam dance i imagine you're invested in the future of independent cinema existing as a thing that everyone can share, right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, yeah, we've been doing Slam Dance for 28 years and, um, you know, supporting, you know, great filmmakers over the years, showing their first films, you know, everyone from Bong Joon-ho to Ryan Johnson, who was a PA on Omaha the Movie, by the way, and, um, and uh, yeah, I mean, filmmakers need a place to start and, and they and they need a, a leg up where wherever you can get them. Um, but so, yeah, no, I'm invested in, in, I mean, the nice thing about independent film is that, you know, we can make these films, uh, and this film specifically, with a lot of support of people from Omaha, by the way, you know, a lot of our investors and backers and, and uh, product placement from Omaha Stakes on down, um, you know, came because these are people that support me as a, as a filmmaker, and they're cast agnostic. They're like, Dan will get a good cast. We we trust him. You know, we don't <laughs> care who it is, which is great because that allows us to do the thing that Altman said, which is to set that start date and, and, and say the train's leaving the station. We're going to make another movie. And, and so I've been very fortunate and lucky and, and having the support of people in Nebraska and in Omaha to, to work on my films. And, and there's a number of cast in the film, actually. A lot of the voice performers, the smaller um, Don Schwartz, who was in Omaha the movie, has a small voice role in this one. Um, 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 uh, Samantha Buchanan, uh, who was in the last movie, she her voice is in this. Christopher Dukes, who was in Omaha the movie, was our stunt coordinator. Um, so there's a lot of people that really supported the film from here. And, um, and, and they keep coming back and saying, how can we help? What, what's the next film, Dan? 
and then I got to come up with something. <laughs> well, I mean, then so Altman made what, like a movie every year for 40 years? Do you, do you have another one lined up? Are you ready? No, I'm not ready. <laughs> so <laughs> I know it is a tough burden. But, um, but I also know that the way I do it, I, there is a lot left to do on this film. Um, you know, the soundtrack just came out. Um, and I will actually have uh, uh, flexi discs available uh, on vinyl uh, at the screening for people to buy. Um, and uh, and I still have to work on the DVD and the Blu-ray and, 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 there, there's, and there's taxes and accounting. I mean, there's a lot to do on these. The films. fun stuff. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, so I know you also talked about maybe there's going to be a, a theatrical adaptation. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And actually talking to some folks in Omaha maybe about that. So. Oh, that's exciting. Um, it is. Yeah. And so I know you're going to do uh, a screening at Film Streams. Do you have uh, uh, a big relationship with Film Streams with any of your previous films? Yeah, they've all played there. Um, that's the relationship. <laughs> so, yeah, and uh, I mean, the, well, the film is playing at, at Film at Film Streams downtown, but um, but I mean, the Dundee Theater was the theater I grew up at, you know, and, uh, and and we showed dailies for Omaha the movie at the Dundee. So I certainly have a relationship. Long goes back, you know, fifty years with with the Dundee. I'm not. That, am I that old? I might be that old. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, I remember, you know, when Rachel Jacobson was starting Film Streams, and now I'm friends with Deirdre um, and, and Diana over there. Um, so it's a great organization, and, and I'm I'm very happy to to help support them by having them support me. So, <laughs> well, I really appreciate that I got to watch the movie because it was a very fun movie to Thank watch. Thank you so much. Anytime anyone gives Bruce Campbell a role that's uh, interesting, I'm always excited for it. You know, like I've seen all this, even the scrappy stuff like My Name is Bruce, which <laughs> yeah. it's fun, but it's fun to see him flex his muscles a little right. more, too. Exactly, yeah, and he likes it, you know. That's good. Yeah. You should make something with him. I, yeah. I keep trying. <laughs> I think I saw him say something he wants to make, a political satire, so I don't yeah, know. Yeah, that's right. Well, I mean, this is, you know, uh, but yeah, yeah, he wants to do, yeah, I, did, I think I saw that same interview. So, yeah, no, he really, he enjoys political satire. I mean, he, like I said, he and Ted Raimi have done some radio bits on one of their albums or something, some audio things. So it is, it is a, a, an area that he wants to do more of. Well, I'm sorry I just derailed. I was trying to like lead out and talk oh, about how good the movie sorry. is, and then I got distracted because well, I love you. Bruce Campbell. Sorry. But I really did like the movie. Uh, 18 and a half, it's out there for people to watch. It'll be on streaming soon, right? So mm -hmm. is there anywhere you want to direct people to learn more about whatever you have coming out? Well, we have, uh, I mean, they can go to my website, danmervish.com or 18andahalfmovie.com. The 18 is the number, the rest is spelled out. That part gets a little confusing. But, um, or just Google or follow me on all the social media, the TikTok and the Instagram and you have the a Twitter. Yeah, of course. Wow, okay. And the Instagram and the Twitter and the, and the Facebook. We, we got them. We got them all. Um, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and then um, come to the screening at the Film Streams. It's going to be playing for two weeks there, which is pretty amazing. It's a, that is a real commitment to an independent film of any stripe um, that they're committing two weeks to, to the film. But I will be there um, on Friday this Friday uh, for the Q&A, but I'll probably be dropping by for some other unannounced Q&As, which they don't even know about. So, That's a great tease, and I think it's a good place for us to end. So thanks so much for being here today, Dan. No, thank you. Thanks for having me on. Riverside Chats is a production of KIOS 91.5 FM, Omaha Public Radio. The show is produced and edited by Courtney Bierman. Our original music is written and performed by The Real Zebos. Our artwork is done by Ben Matukowicz. Remember, you can find the backlog of all of these conversations wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe today and please leave us a review. As always, thank you for listening. I'm Tom Noblock.